Is anybody watching? Groups, that? we I don't know, but they're gonna hear us, and these are the first few seconds. How do we know if anybody's there? We don't know. I don't like that. I it's like know. Schrodinger's cat. You'll never know. I'm really a dog person. Thank you to everyone who has been supporting the podcast by subscribing, giving us a five-star rating, writing glowing reviews, sharing the podcast far and wide, and donating. donating. We have amazing things planned. It's true. But most important of all, Thank you very much for joining us on these wild adventures into history, ideas, and existential, existential mystery. mystery. Welcome, one and all, to the Artifact Podcast with Nachliel Sullivan and... Mayor Simcha Panzer. And Woo! we see we reversed our names there because I'm Mayor Simcha Panzer and that's Nachliel Sullivan, right? But if you're searching for us to subscribe to the podcast, it's good to type in Nachliel when you type in Artifact Podcast. Yes, if you could figure out how to spell it. Anyway, so welcome to episode five. Today, we're going to be talking about... A menorah. This is a Ten Agora coin, a Hasmonean coin that the last Hasmonean king, Matitiao Antigonus, Matithias Antigonus II, who was actually executed after surrendering to Herod the Great, so that's really the Herodian period. But anyway, he minted coins with a seven-branch menorah on it, which is the image on the back of this Israeli coin. Oh, so you're telling me that our coin has an image of a coin. Yes, in the words of Inception, a dream within a dream. You know what that's quoting, right? Um, it's an Edgar Allan Poe poem. Oh. Take this kiss upon your brow, and imparting from you now, thus much let me avow, you are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. Yet if hope has flown away in a night or in a day, in a vision or in none, isn't it therefore the less gone? Something like that. Um, yes, it's, it's my favorite poem by Poe. Well, clearly, Malach uh, uh, you you were able to. That was that was impressive. It wasn't exactly apropos to this episode, but yes, onward um, we go. Anyhow, so what I w just wanted to, to just point out is that all of the modern Israeli coins, whether it's the, the lira, the, the original shekel, which was used, you know, in the seventies to the early nineteen eighties, to the shekel chadash, the new Israeli shekel. But either way, the images are always patterned on Jewish coins, either from the Hasmonean Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmonean period, hmm. which was a few kings, uh, it was a short dynasty, or whether it's the Great Revolt against the Romans, who also expressed their sovereignty by minting coins. Bar Kokhba. And Bar Kokhba, who also restruck coins of, uh, of Trajan or Hadrian, and he minted his own Bar Kokhba Revolt coins. You're saying he, he took Roman coins and then Well, he... they needed the coins from somewhere. Ah, so he's using their coins, and he was just restriking them. Restriking right. them. I mean, that's a whole field. Heating them up and stamping them. Yeah, with his I mean image. that's a whole field of study in numismatics mm -hmm. is the history of coins and where the minting, where the mints were. The point is that in the modern state of Israel, looking back at these three periods in which we expressed a certain degree of sovereignty, and sovereignty in the in antiquity is always expressed through having the money. Like you have the money. Okay. Point is that this coin has an image of a coin, which has an image of. The menorah. Now, what's cool about this particular Hasmonean coin is that only 60 of them have been found and exist in, in, around the world mm. of them. And they're the last Hasmonean coin. Ah. One of the scholarly speculations are that these were minted while there was a siege on Jerusalem. In other words, it's the very... It's the death throes. He's fighting mm -hmm, a war. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really have the opportunity mm -hmm. to get into circulation because in contrast to these coins which he minted mm -hmm. to show the 
Hasmonean dynasty's, let's say, hopes of continuity, okay. Herod minted his own coins as counter-propaganda to his. In other words, let me show you what the symbols that are on my coins and you should support me. And he ends up actually, you know, killing Matitiao Antigonos and, uh, and ascending the throne. We know Herod the Great. So that was the year 37 before the Common Era. And we were just lighting menorahs. Yeah. On Hanukkah. We came out of Hanukkah. The, the Hanukkah, the Hanukkah menorah, was clearly derived from the menorah that we had in Beit HaMikdash in the temple. I mean, the assumption is yes, because we went and lit candles, and then that's the whole story of Hanukkah, which has to do with the Hasmoneans and this coin, too, which is kind of cool. Right, because the thing that, the oil that burned for eight nights, was, or for eight Right. Eight full days was and so the we, oil in and we the take that menorah and we in the temple. Make a different menorah with eight nights, with eight branches. That's, I guess, a little it's bit really, later. It's, it's really kind of strange when you think about it. It's like, okay, this was in a menorah, so now we'll make a menorah, but we'll change the number of branches so that it should correspond to the number of days, and now we can have an, a, a debate between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about how you should light it. and You light it from right to left, from left to right. Well, you go from one from one to eight, or eight, eight to one. Or eight to one. It's the anyway. final count. Da, 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 da. This is going to be hell to edit. <laughs> what? Just keep it. Oh man! All right. So, <laughs> please take us into the meat of the matter. The menorah, the most iconic Jewish image up until maybe the last 200, 250 years, where the Star of David, the six-pointed star, the, the Magen David became pretty much synonymous with Judaism. I mean, the Holocaust said that more than all, right? Wearing the yellow star. Mm -hmm. The modern state of Israel flag has Star of David on it. The first Zionist Congress with Herzl, we're talking about Basel, we're talking about 1897, mm -hmm. had the their flag, their emblem as the Star of David with lions and some other we'll stuff. We'll have to do a whole other episode on the Mag David, on yeah, the Star would, of David. Yeah, I mean, David. I hope we do because there's so much to talk about. Oh yeah, that'll be great, but... But we're talking about the menorah, the seven-branched menorah, you. not the Hanukkah menorah. <laughs> we're talking about the menorah, the candelabrum of the temple vessels, and how that came to be such an important symbol throughout millennia. So maybe it would be helpful to describe how, how it can make that claim that it's so famous, where we find it. Okay. First of all, the earliest image of the seven-branch menorah is this coin. This is the earliest one. We don't have any archaeological evidence of this, like, this picture from before this coin. There's only 60 of them in the world, and the only exception of this image is a recent discovery of a tomb from the Hasmonean period, which had the menorah carved in it, symbolizing that it's Jewish which is something that you find throughout the Roman period. You find, like, mm -hmm. for example, Beit Sharim, where Rabbi Yudah Nasi, the author of the Mishnah, the composer oh, of the Mishnah. Oh, that one has an image of the menorah. So that one has the most extensive Jewish catacomb in the land of Israel, mm -hmm. and it's in the Galilee, of course, because that's where the Jews were concentrated at that period of time. They were okay. banned from Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the, the late 2nd to early 3rd century, and so in Beit Sharim, there is a massive underground catacomb where many of the tombs have a seven branch, sometimes even ten branches. Like ten branches. They just like sort of went Lots over of the top a little bit. Yeah, okay. they kind of branched out a little bit. Branched out, yeah, okay. Or tentaclized it. Artistic license. Yeah, and, uh, and that's how you know it's Jewish. It's there, so this is a marker. And you find that also in the catacombs in like uh, Villa, um, I'm blanking out, in Rome, right? You find this in Villa Torlina, I think, Torlona. You find this in Rome, you find this on Jewish Roman art, Jewish from the late Roman period on like gold with glass on it, which has menorahs on it, and it has other Jewish icons as well, which you would recognize. Well, th those are what kind of object? 
So we have like the bottom of a of a of a glass vessel, and it was apparently broken off at some sort of funerary ceremony, and they buried, they put in the catacombs, they put the base, the glass base of uh -huh. some sort of vessel. Okay. And it is decorated with gold on it, which has two menorahs flanking something. There's an Aaron Kodesh, an ark with the Torah scrolls laying down in it. It has two flanking lions. Uh -huh. It has Lulav Etrog for for the, the, the a usual bunch of Jewish, Jewish a bunch of Jewish stuff. Jewish stuff. Jewish stuff crammed into there really nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few of them that have been found. And by the way, if you look at the the exhibition, the vitrina next to it, you'll see the same idea in the Christian world where there's there's a cross instead of the menorah, but it's a Christian scene, but it's the same artisan, it's the same, it's quite clearly the same. Ah, so that's interesting because today, like mm -hmm. if you go to a military cemetery in America yeah. and you look and you see uh, the graves of Christians will be marked right. with crosses and the graves of Jews will be marked with the Star of David. The Star of David. Right. And you're saying that in that time period, mm -hmm. the parallel to a cross was not the Magen David, not the Star of David, but rather the menorah. The menorah was really the predominant symbol of Judaism for most of history. Yeah. It's also how you identify a synagogue, almost, almost. Well, Jewish or Samaritan, which is kind of cool. Ah, so the Samaritans were into the menorah as a symbol too. But they were not into the four species, the Arab Aminim, which is a rabbinical derivation, interpretation of how to understand. It's Torah Shabbat the the oral law, which they rejected. And so in the Samaritan synagogues, other than the fact that they're facing Hargarizim, right, Okay. They're also, they have uh, menorahs. Okay, they aren't facing toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem. They're facing which, toward their... Which most of the okay. synagogues in Israel and in the world face Jerusalem. There are a few exceptions in Jewish and Samaritan synagogues. Maybe, for whatever reason, uh, architectural, but the, whatever. But the, the Samaritan synagogues are facing not toward Jerusalem, Correct. but toward the Mount... Correct, like there's, Mount one in, there's one that you find in the Israel Museum. <laughs> you gotta let me finish my sentences. Oh, sorry, sorry. I okay, you because finished. you said Hargarizim before. Right. Right. So if you don't know what a har is. Mount Gerizim. Yeah, there you go. In the Samaritan Bible, it's har Gerizim. It's one word. Oh, yeah? And, and like you find it actually in manuscripts, har Gerizim. It's also found in, uh, I think, in Greek manuscripts, har Gerizim. Yeah, Mount Gerizim is one word. Okay. Yeah, but that was the holy site of the Samaritans until today. I mean, they, they mm -hmm. have a wonderful Still Passover there. Seder there where they, 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 they slaughter the they Korban Pesach, the, the Paschal Lamb. Mm. Wow. Okay. So that's that. Mm-hmm. So we're marching through history with the menorah. And, and marching, marching through is a very good way to describe it because the most iconic image of a menorah is the Arch of Titus. Ah, okay. Which, so that, that takes us backwards because right now we were, we were right. like getting into the Byzantine right. I just period, realized right? Because, because you mentioned the marching. Marching, yeah. That's what they paid me the big bucks for. Here's what we've been talking about. I whipped out a 10 Abura coin that is like an Israeli dime, right? The shekel is divided into 100 parts. Each one is called an agura, and this is a coin. It's basically, our, it is our smallest coin now. And on the side that doesn't have a big 10 on it, it has a menorah. This is actually the image of a Hashmonai coin, uh, one of the coins from the like Maccabee dynasty that they were striking, the uh, end of the Hellenistic period. So we have a coin with an image of a coin on it, and that coin has an image of a menorah on it, which is fascinating because why on earth would you put a menorah on a coin? What does it have to do with anything? So we're seeing that this object in the temple is assuming some kind of symbolic quality. It means something to the people who are going to use the coin. What does it mean exactly? Open question. Why the menorah exactly? 
open question. Like, why would you use the menorah from the temple as opposed to the table with the showbread or the Ark of the Covenant or the incense altar or the altar or the Jerusalem skyline with the temple? But for some reason, we chose the menorah, which is fascinating. And then we started to get into how that developed. So this coin that we were talking about was the last coin minted by the Hashmonaim, by the Maccabee dynasty. And we then see that image marking Jewish graves here in Israel. And we see the image in conjunction with graves also in, uh, it was Rome, right? Yes. Rome, probably throughout the uh, Byzantine Empire. And then we started to backtrack. This image was kind of frozen into the annals of history by one Titus, who commemorated his conquest of Judea by making the Arch of Titus, which shows his army marching out of Jerusalem with the menorah from the temple. And that's an important thing to state because for many years, people actually thought that it was Jews, Jewish slaves, uh, captives carrying the menorah. Oh, why? That's what actually thought. Why would people think that? Well, you know, there's a parading the, the, the captives of war. I mean, we know from, from Jewish wars that... Uh, we're taking it with us. That, that Shimon Bar Giora and some of the main leaders of the revolt were paraded. Huh, okay. So how do we know that the Arch of Titus is actually showing Roman soldiers? Because it was cleaned very recently. Ah! <laughs> Cleaning up the act. Okay, that's good. When I was thinking back to how the menorah would get its potency as a symbol, I was thinking on the one hand of... Hanukkah and of right. the the reconquest of the, well, the, 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 the victory of the Maccabees, cleaning out the temple, getting things started over there again, and think. now the the menorah kind of bursts into our consciousness potentially. I don't know what's anachronistic and what isn't, but it seems that the menorah would burst into our consciousness as kind of a rallying point of Jewish identity, which brings together this religious aspect of the people with the nationalistic aspect of the people, with the the nationalistic not just as uh, like we have self-rule, but also this is our national identity. Like this is the moment, this is the place, this is the object that distinguished us from the Hellenistic empire, which has engulfed the world and brought wonderful things to the world. But somehow this is unique for us here. Um, so that was one thing I was thinking about. And the other thing that I was thinking about was the moment that the Romans conquer us right. and take out the menorah, right. and they do it with a guy, with a traitor. Historically speaking, did that story actually happen or not is always going to be the historian. No, no, no. I'm not right. interested in the historical perspective. No, but that's important. But, uh, that's important because this is how uh, the Talmud, how Chazal are, are saying we want to talk about it hundreds of years after it happened because now we look at it like this. Uh-huh. So you're saying that even if it didn't occur that way historically, and the truth is it seems like a really weird thing for an army to go and do, but you're saying even if it didn't happen that way historically, that's kind of how we're defining that moment afterwards, or that's how we're, we're sort of imagining that moment there. Well, why don't you tell the story? Well, the story goes that the Romans tried to make a deal with this guy who was Yosef Mishito, apparently became a, a Sadducee, became basically opposed to the, he basically was on the Roman side. So they sent, it, they sent him and they said, Let's, we're not just going to barge into the temple. I mean, you know, it's, it's a holy place. It may be protected. We might be hexed or something, or vexed or something like that. They send in one of the Jews. Mm -hmm. The Jew goes in, walks out with the menorah. Mm -hmm. They told him to take out whatever they he wanted. They told him to take whatever you want, you can have it. Mm -hmm. He comes out and takes out the menorah. And just pause for a moment, parenthetically. If it takes four 
buff Roman soldiers to lift that menorah on their shoulders, do you think one guy went in and walked out with it? Which menorah? What did it look like? How big was it really? Well, maybe Titus was just inflating the menorah for his own grandeur. Well, they say that the economy was very Titus during his years. <sighs> and by the way, that's, they, they, this is one of the reasons for the plundering of Jerusalem. Oh. It brought prosperity. This is like in the books. The first mention, I think, in history of the, the, the digit one million shows up in the records of Vespasian discussing the spoils of war of, on Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. Wow. It's an incredible thing. So you're saying Jerusalem was wealthy enough under the Hashemonaim that it made a big economic difference to no, the Romans? under Herod the Great. Under the following, after, ah, after Herod, ah, after the ah, temple ah. was significantly upgraded mm. and became a tourist attraction for people mm. from around the world, which brought in tremendous amount of tourism and revenue. Mm. We're talking over 100 years after the last, about 100 years after the last Maccabee died. Okay. And then... Uh, towards the turn of the millennia. The, Herod died in the year 4 BCE. Mm -hmm. right? He basically was the one who set off the shifting of Jerusalem to a what the magnificence it was. Mm. And so... Turned it into a good Roman city. With a temple that rivaled all the Roman temples. Mm. Right? That is the wealth that we're talking about. Decades, if not 100 years after the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. And what you basically see is that the gold went down, I think, by one-third, the value of gold in the Roman Empire just because of the amount of gold from the spoils of war. Wow. So that's an important wow. story. But cool. the icon of the Romans carrying a menorah that size with that big, heavy lampstand, and you see it's half-a-ton uh, replica in, in the, the old city, right? You, meet, you, you realize it couldn't have been that if somebody's actually carrying it, unless it's anachronistic, and the point is just to give an idea. Hmm. But in any event, he walks out with his menorah, and well, then they say to him, well, well, you know what? Maybe he took a cart with wheels. Uh, still, how would he get it on there without doing cartwheels? Leverage, man. I mean, we built a whole temple. Yeah, but this is one guy. Did he get people to help him? And he... A Yiddish a cup. Come on. I'm not even going to go there. So, so he, he, no, like cups and flour. Yeah, yeah. He was able to go there. But anyway, so back to our story. He walked out with that, and they told him, no, no, on second thought, this is worthy of the king or whatever. You can't have it. Mm -hmm. Nice regular person, a hediot, can't have it. Why don't you go in and take something else, and that will be yours? And then he said, no, I'm not doing it. And they said, well, they offered him tax-collecting authority, which means he would be really very rich. They offered him this, they offered him that. He refused to go in. And so they skinned him alive, they flayed him, and he screamed, woe to me who have uh, angered I, my I creator. I thought they cut him into little bits. Maybe I'm mixing that with Rabbi Akiva, but yeah. either way, they, uh, they basically shredded the whole um, argument. Whew is very choppy connection. Yeah. Yeah, and so basically the point was to show that that even those most, you know, the Jews who have gone off will have this Jewish conscience which will bring them back in desperate times, but the menorah is not really brought as a symbol there but so what I What I love about that story mm -hmm. is how it connects back to the way that maybe we were starting to see the menorah in the time of the Hashemonaim as really a rallying symbol of identity. Good. So you see this traitor who goes for the menorah and then winds up giving up his life over the menorah because he said, no, 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 I can't, I can't betray my identity over this. But the question is, would it have been the same if it would have been the shulchan, like the showbread table or something else? Is it just like random or is there specific meaning to the menorah? No, that's what I was saying about the right. Kashmonim period. It's, so the because interesting of thing the is, miracle of Hanukkah. So the interesting thing is that we only, we have a plethora of coins and designs from the Hasmoneans. Mm -hmm. And they all have motifs which are 
aniconic, in other words, they don't have any icons of gods and faces of rulers, which was the typical Greek thing. Okay. Okay. But what they do have is clearly Hellenistic motifs, just that aren't of deities. So, for example, they have the double twisted cornucopia with some you know fruits and stuff around them, or they have a an anchor or a steering wheel for a boat. But none of them have the menorah. The menorah is the last Hasmonean coin. So you can't say maybe they had one we didn't find it. Huh. He's the last one to do it. And so the coin expert, uh, Yaakov Meshorer of blessed memory, basically su- suggested it perhaps that he's using this as a representative of the house of Aaron, of the priests of the Kohanim, who were the Hasmonean dynasties, were Kohanim, uh. to, to as propaganda to rally the people to support the Hasmoneans in contrast to his rival, Herod, Herod. the Great. Uh-huh. And what's interesting is that the coin has two sides, which each have a temple vessel. One side has the menorah, mm-hmm. and the other side has the showbread table. And there's several different versions of the coin, so oh, you can really? tell that. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a four-legged table with two stacks of, mm-hmm. of, of loaves on top of it. So this is a very Kohanic, a very priestly coin. And if you think about what the menorah represents is kehuna. Mm-hmm. Is the Kohanim because yeah. Aaron lights it every day? And but the, the showbread, showbread table represents, represents king, king priest. King. Now we yeah. might be reading that into it, but it, it, since this is the last mm-hmm. Hasmonean coin, it is not so hard to put that forward. Nobody's going for the incense altar. That'd be kind of like a an admonition that so you stink. It's, what would it look like? Like how do you make that on a coin? That, that's a good question. Like we don't really know. We were told by the Talmud that at certain times a year during the Regalim, during the holidays, the priests would bring out the temple vessels, which are usually inside the Heichal. Very few, only the priests can see them, right? That's where they're associated with the priests, with the Kohanim. Okay. And they would bring them out, the menorah and the showbread table, for everybody to see. Hmm. So these two are iconic associations with the priesthood and with the temple. Hmm. And so what Yaakov Meshorer is suggesting is that they represent the priesthood and the temple service, basically saying, if you support me, this dynasty, this line, this connection has a chance to survive. And if you support him, it's all over. Hmm. And this is to inspire people and bring them hope. It's using the showbread table equally with the menorah, not uniquely the menorah. Got it. So however we understand the significance of the menorah in that period, it still didn't solidify as this is the symbol of the Jewish people yet. Right. It's two religious symbols, cultic symbols, which have deep sentiment. Okay. So, again, we've gone from actual useful instrument in Mm -hmm. the temple Mm -hmm. to to a symbol on the last coin of Mm -hmm. the Hashmonaim. Right. To a symbol on the Arch of Titus. Right. Which has both nationalistic and economic ramifications. Okay. Okay. Then we talked about it's significant in marking uh, Jewish graves. And you mentioned synagogues. synagogues. And lots of Byzantine period uh, Jewish art, if you will, okay. or crafts, okay. perhaps. Okay. So it's like Oil a decorative lamps, element synagogues that you see. made 3D menorahs for lighting. Mm-hmm. They made them in mosaic pavements. We find the painting in the Dura Europa synagogue, which is more like the Mishnah period. Mm-hmm. And that's in, in Syria. So the menorahs are there. They're not the only icon. Okay. In other words, you I mean, do, it was never the no, only icon, In the was Byzantine it? period, you find the menorah have seeming to be predominant. Okay. But it does also have the four species, and it's quite consistent. There is a, seri- a set of icons that travel together. Mm-hmm. So you ha- you'll have a menorah, mm-hmm. you'll have a, an incense shovel, 
and you'll have a shofar, a, a horn for blowing the shofar, uh, which is re not the cornucopia, right? Okay. And a ram's horn, right? Got it. And then you'll have the four species, which is a citron and a trog and a hadas lav arava, a, mm -hmm. a, a palm branch with a willow and a... And a I'm curious, when we go into uh, Ashkenaz, when we go into Europe, like mm. uh, more northern Europe, do we see the arba, meaning the four species, drop out very quickly? I, when do we, well, when's the earliest example of them uh, being used in Europe? I we mean, have I mean, really old graves of Jews in Poland. So, well, I will say that when it comes to graves, there is a Jewish cemetery from the 5th century right, right, yeah. in Tsoar, which is in, in the other side of the, in Jordan today. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, like east of the southeast of the Dead Sea, mm -hmm. and in Tsar there was a, an entire collection of Jewish tombstones that have been found with the menorah, mm -hmm. with a Aron Kodesh, the Holy Ark, which usually is a segmented box with laying scrolls laying down. Okay. Right, which is not what you'd expect it to look like. No, right? not at all. Uh, with the four species and with the show, the sh incense shovel, the, they they're all there. Hmm. Okay. So they travel together. Okay. That's a tombstone. My question is, does one drop out when you get to a climate where you don't have those species growing? Uh, perhaps. I mean, I don't know for sure. I haven't seen it. I just know that in, in a lot of manuscripts, you see them together. Okay. You see a lot of, but you usually see temple vessels alongside the menorah, not necessarily the lulavitrobe. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Um, so after the Byzantine period, what happens? Well, we continue to see it in the Muslim period. We see it in synagogues. The Muslims also, for like in the Umayyad period, like 600, like the 7th century, they did use the menorah briefly on a coin from Jerusalem. Perhaps there was an association with the, with, between the coin and the temple, perhaps, maybe, even though it's a five-branched menorah. But generally speaking, you don't really, I don't, I don't know if you find it so much. You only find it in the synagogues. And you always find two of them flanking the Ark, and sometimes even more than two. Hmm. The question is, is that there is a symbol? Because there it's, it's a seven-branch menorah. There's a whole thing about Solomon having many menorahs in the temple, right? So what Solomon did is he, he augmented the size of the Mishkan times ten. And hmm. so he added times ten of the menorahs and the shulchan to have just ten times more. Oh, wow. And what did the menorah look like then? We don't actually know. We don't know. We don't know. The earliest proof that we have of how we interpret it now is this coin, which wasn't available to, for example, the uh, medieval commentator Nachmanides, Ramban. Uh-huh. What does he, he say? He reads through the verses and it tried to draw what it means, how it's supposed to look based on the verses, and you can't come up with anything. It's not clear. You get confused with how exactly the branches are supposed to come out of the base, in what way. It's not at all Wait, clear if you okay, actually so try it. Hold on. I, I know that we have a Midrash that says that Moshe was hearing about the design of all the vessels of the temple, or the at that time the Mishkan, the mm -hmm. tabernacle. Mm -hmm. He was hearing about all that on Har Sinai. He got it. He goes down. And it all made sense. It was all fine, except for the design of the menorah. Which he couldn't he figure couldn't, out. He couldn't so figure he, out. he tried to do it. And this sounds this sounds kind of crazy to a modern person who's used to the images of the menorah that we have because it doesn't seem that complicated. And you read the verses and like, okay, I read the verses, kind of makes sense. But then Moshe goes back up again. Right. You know, Hashem describes it to him or shows it to him again. He goes back down, forgets it again, goes back up. He keeps doing this over and over. You know, Moshe, says God eventually, just go down and give the instructions to B'Tzalel and like he'll bang on it and eventually it'll come out. Well, but I have so, a crazy story I mean, like th th This thing is emphasizing how cryptic the instructions are. So that, you know, the 
our sages who are, are clearly sensitive to how bizarre the verses are, but I'm not sure that I quite get how cryptic they are. It's like, what, what do you see there that's so I would have, so to, hard I would to, have to read the verses for you. Okay, yeah, just, do it. So I'm reading... In Exodus. Uh, I'm going to read with the English to make it easier for our listeners, and it goes like this. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, calyxes, and petals shall be of one piece. So there's that whole discussion of these floral elements that are combined into its parts. Six branches shall issue from its side. Three branches from one side of the lampstand and three branches from the other side of the lampstand. That sounds easy enough, right? Yep, that sounds pretty much. On one branch there shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals. And on the next branch shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals. So far with six branches issuing from the lampstand. So far, so good. On the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups shaped like almond blossoms, calyx. In other words, you have three on the branches and four on the main base. Mm -hmm. Okay, whatever that is. A calyx of one piece with it under a pair of branches, and a calyx of one piece with it under the, pair, the second pair of branches, and a calyx of one piece with it under the last pair of branches. So far, all the six branches issuing from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their stems shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single hammered piece of pure gold. Now, make it seven lamps. The lamps shall be so mounted as to give light on its front side. I'm not mm -hmm. sure what's so perplexing about it. Why would, what does Ramban say? What, what is he sensitive to that I'm not sensitive to? Here. What, what am I assuming that makes this too easy? This is a book by Professor Stephen Fine of Yeshiva University. The Menorah from the Bible to Modern Israel. And I remember how he actually had us describe, you know, try to read out these pieces from, from Exodus 25, which you just read, right? Make the lamps out of pure gold and have these stalks that are coming out of it. And by the way, I read a very clean translation, which made it easier to understand. Sometimes it's not exactly clear what we're talking about. Um, but he writes here, this compulsive word picture is one confusing text, whether in translation or in the original Hebrew. When I have asked students to draw what they read or listen carefully when it is read aloud, it is virtually impossible to imagine what is being described. Most students agree that the menorah is a kind of overgrown plant, complete with branches, bulbs, and flowers. Ancient rabbis were cognizant of this conundrum as they read the biblical text, imagining that God was forced to show Moses a fiery prototype of the lampstand, and that even that was too difficult for him until the, the divinely gifted artisan, Bitzalel ben Uri, filled with the Spirit of God, with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all, cra all craftsmanship to devise artistic Okay, designs. that's what I was referencing before. Right, but Moses, son of Nachmanides, known as Nachman, known as Nachmanides, as much as threw up his hands at the futility of reconstructing the intricacies okay, that, that, of Hold on, that, that, that's what I want. That's the interesting part here. Okay, it's like right. what... So, tell me why it's so confusing. Co commenting on Exodus 25:30, he writes, the wisdom of the menorah, of its cups and calyxes and flowers, from whence will you find it, as it is well hidden, Ma'inti matzevehine elama, Right, that is, it is a sort of lost cause. Whence comes the wisdom, etc.? He goes like this, figuring out where to place the cups, bulbs, and flowers, the branches, and the base is no easy matter for those of us who did not live during the biblical period, when the technical denotations of the various artifacts might have been clearer. It is like asking a contemporary team to imagine a samovar without ever having seen one or having been served tea from it. In other words, the branches of the menorah, figuring out how exactly you're supposed to make them in a way that they all face and shape at the same time, it's not clear unless you work backwards from the image we have. It just says seven branches protrude from one side, but how? Are they parallel? I don't know. I think, I think your professor is overselling how complicated this is. Because when we look at all the different images of menorot that we were looking at uh, offline before, you know, they all look basically the same. They all have seven branches. They all have these floral elements. Okay, if you're Chabad, you think they're straight well, coming like out in a triangular kanim, way, maybe they're concerned. What is a kane? There are seven. There are six kanim that protrude out of it. Six. We translate that in modern Hebrew now, like now as branches, but that's not what it actually says. Okay, reeds, that's fine. Okay. But so what does that mean to make reed like hollow things? 
are they supposed to be round and looking plant-like, or are they supposed to be straight and mechanical? Like, what is this, what is this thing? And the point, the, the only point that I'm making is that you can't figure out how to make what we have today from reading the verses. You're going to come up with something artistic flow. flow, flow I don't know. I think, I think you'd get very close to what we have today. Sure, the details are underdetermined, right? So maybe you can argue, well, it says kanim, which is reeds, so maybe they should be round as opposed to a flatter design like we tend to imagine today. Right. In other words, but, it's not, the point that I'm making is that it's not at all... But it has the same basic shape. But the point that I'm making is that it's not at all clear that this is the definitive interpretation of those verses. What? We, we don't know that this is how it meant to make it. You're saying that the coin isn't necessarily a faithful representation of what was in the, the temple. The coin was minted in Jerusalem while the, while the temple menorah was there. Right, so it's it based on the image everybody weird knew. That, okay. But the question is, is this indeed what it looked like in, 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 the, in the, the desert, in the wilderness? Do we know that for sure? Is, Not necessarily. We're making the assumption based on this working backwards. Uh, you're, I feel like you're, inter, you're injecting skepticism where there's no good need for it. I'm just pointing out that, it's, that, that, it's, that this interpretation... Anything where you have something visual that's described right. in words, you could always say, well, is it like we imagine it today? And the answer is maybe, maybe not. Like, right. I mean, because I a picture cool. is worth a thousand words, right. and if it's described in less than a thousand words, then, you know, it's going to be underdetermined by those words. Okay, we're, we're branching off too far. I don't think we're branching off. I just, you had me so sold here on how underdetermined this, this is. So this is going to be like a revelation for me that maybe the menorah is really shaped like a cedar tree or like a rose bush or like something crazy. Maybe. And if you, if you just look at it, we don't like, what, what, what is it supposed to look like? But there's nothing to suggest that. There's nothing to suggest something radically different. I don't see what the radical ambiguity is. And Ramban there doesn't sound to me like he's uh, so perplexed by the design. It sounds like he's talking about this other symbolic element of the menorah, this idea of chokhmah, of wisdom, and where does, saying... Where does that show up, that the menorah represents wisdom? Well, this becomes a big thing in the Kabbalistic literature and thereafter, mm -hmm. also in the sort of the reaction to the to the Maskilim, to the Enlightenment era stuff, where people are saying, no, 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 we have a different kind of wisdom. This is how we think about wisdom. We think about it through the seven branches of the menorah, so the seven which, are can, which correspond to the seven fundamentals. Seven uh, yeah, seven wisdoms. But you realize that that existed in medieval Christianity. Yeah, I'm well aware. Wisdoms, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's not necessarily a uniquely Jewish idea. My point was just that Ramban, Nachmanides, right. when he was remarking on the obscure aspect of the menorah, it didn't seem that he was talking about the obscurity of the design of the menorah. It seemed that he was talking about the obscurity of the fundamental wisdom which he sees as embodied or symbolized by I the menorah. I did not get that impression. My impression was he's speaking What's he doing quoting Job over there? Because that's, that's, not that's the just design. the thing you do. No! You want to say he's doing he, this Kabbalistic no. hint? Yes. Maybe. He doesn't talk stam. He doesn't just say stuff. He's Nachmanides. <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's see. Let's see. Maybe an academic professor can get along, you know, dismissing the words of our sages, saying like, oh, yeah, he's just saying that. It's so utterly stupid. That's not how they talk. And anybody who's going to be that dismissive is not going to get what the Torah is really about. Um, hmm. This is curious, because I remember at the time that this was somehow a big deal, and now it's sounding like it's not such a big deal. I feel like we've beaten the art history into the ground here. 
You want to talk more about wisdom? Yeah, let's talk about wisdom. So the seven branches of wisdom, we mentioned that that's medieval, uh, Christian. Like we know the idea. The point is that the seven branches of wisdom, even representing like a this candelabrum, is a has scholastic been division of human knowledge. Right. There's into medicine. Seven there's music, etc. There's there are even, different versions. Right, and and there's even grammar. The Chazal say that if you want to, uh, if you want to pray for wisdom, then when you face Jerusalem, tilt yourself to the direction of the menorah. Uh, if you want to be wealthy, you should turn towards the north. If you want to be wise, you should turn towards the south. Now, the assumption is that you are facing the west, right? You're standing with your back to the east. You're standing forward towards the west, right? Because that's the direction of okay. the temple. That's where I would be right? And on your right-hand side, which is to the north, you have the, the showbread table. And on your left-hand side, which is the south, you have the menorah. And the bread, the showbread table, okay. bread, is always a symbol of wealth, okay. sustenance, okay. right? And, on, and light is a symbol of wisdom. Okay. So when you're praying, and we always pray towards Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem towards the mm -hmm. temple, and in the temple towards the Holy okay. of Holies, that's your orientation. Now, if I just go straight ahead to the, to the ark, then... Then it's neutral. You can't get a bit of both. You have to make a choice. Do you want money or wisdom? Okay, so we see an association between the menorah and wisdom there. It's about light, right? Right, light right. is mm -hmm. wisdom. It's yep. delight, enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But that idea... Yeah, that's a very universal thing. It's very universal. I see. Exactly. In Greek mythology, we have light as representing the wisdom of Athena, right? We have the olive oil, which is used for light and wisdom, and that has an association with the gift of Athena uh, to Athens, which is the olive tree. And she's the quote-unquote goddess of wisdom. Of wisdom and the arts and warfare. Okay. And Athens became a real center of wisdom and knowledge. What they, did they do? planted olive trees in honor of Athena in the Acropolis. Right? And is there a strong connection between Athena and olive oil? Yes. How do we see that? Well, first of all, olive oil being one of the most, the primary exports of Greece, right? It's a very important part of their produce until today. Okay, but that, that's an agricultural thing. But it is something that they associate with as the gift of, in mythology, the gift of Athena to the city of Athens. Is this like a geographical determinist kind of interpretation where it's like people who get olive oil get wise? They definitely believed that. Olive oil is commensurate with knowledge. It strengthens your memory. Athletes would rub their bodies with olive oil to get the, the, the success of Athena. The I do too Athena. for my calluses. There's your calluses. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Except you have five branches protruding. Point is that Hanukkah is the encounter of East with West. Hanukkah is basically an outgrowth of us being of the East, meeting the West, which is primarily Hellenism, which brings in this culture of enlightenment, and that has to do really a lot with Athens, being the center of the Greek world. Yeah, that's fascinating that all this stuff comes together in Hanukkah. I mean, you, you can say in a sense, olive oil, the wisdom of Greece, is competing with the menorah of the wisdom of Judaism in a sense. At least historically, that's how we look at it, right? It's the cultural clash mm -hmm. between uh, traditional you know, Jewish values, mm -hmm. Torah values, and mm -hmm. Hellenism and where that created conflict. And so it really is Athens and Jerusalem. There's a few aspects of how we celebrate Hanukkah today which we can really connect to that. So for example, the iconic image of the prophecy of Zechariah. That's the Haftor. We actually read that on Hanukkah. The point is that we mention the menorah in the context of Hanukkah, mm -hmm. not only the Hanukkah menorah because Zechariah is before the story of Hanukkah. Uh, you're pointing out that it's not to be taken for granted that we would read that passage of Zechariah on the Shabbat of Hanukkah because 
It's historically not connected with the Maccabees in any way. Right. It's just a menorah, and now we have a story that has to do with the menorah, so let's retroactively, even though there, the significance of the menorah is completely different Mm -hmm. than whatever it is we're talking about now. Potentially, or maybe it's very connected. You can listen to my other podcast where I talk about Zacharia with Professor Mark Boda Mm -hmm. and give my sense of how that menorah connects the two different miracles Mm -hmm. of Hanukkah. Well, that's in Two Christians and a Jew? Two Christians and a Jew, which you can catch at twochristiansandajew.com. And that's the most recent episode. And probably not by the time we release this. Oh, you know what? In a year from now, who's going to know? So we're looking for the episode called? Uh... Zachariah and the Golden Lampstand. It's a Harry Potter title. So like, and the Chamber of Secrets? Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the you know, it's the main character, and then a Like a lightning, and it noun. hits you like a lightning bolt. Just a seven-branched lightning uh, bolt. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of an idea as a lightning bulb, right, as light, as uh-huh. wisdom, as yeah, light yeah, in the dark, yeah. like you have to understand yeah. that the menorah is going to have associations with light and darkness, and mm-hmm. that's why it's very much symbolic of that. Mm-hmm. Light versus dark. Not as a Jewish symbol. So how did it become a Jewish symbol? Ah, you're saying that the importance to us as a Jewish symbol is connected to the idea of light and darkness. What would you say? Like a light unto the nations, maybe? Like, why, why would the menorah become that which embodies what it means to be a Jew? Why the menorah? I mean, maybe it's a, a gesture to, you know, the original light of creation, that we see ourselves as the... as carrying on the the project of creation the the consciousness of adam or maybe it's related to the idea that we're in exile but the shechina god's presence is still with us and that's very much about the miracle of the of hanukkah where the the oil stayed lit it shows the presence of god in that uh, era and so we go out to galut but we're taking that light with us and that's still a part of who we are or Maybe the light is about wisdom and saying, listen, you know, we know all the people around us are really successful and really powerful and we seem to be downtrodden, but we're saying that, you know, we have this wisdom that we're going to cling to and that's deeply meaningful to us. Or maybe it's light, uh, maybe in connection with Zaharia, where it's kind of about uh, Ruach HaKodesh. It's about the Holy Spirit and about living in the flow of creation. The fortitude of the Spirit as opposed to the sword. I don't know if that's about fortitude, but yeah, I mean, I'm just, I think that there are a lot of different things that could mean. But the common denominator. But maybe that's part of the point, that it could be so many different things. But all of those things have something to do with light, physically or metaphorically. None of them have to do with, at what point did Judaism see themselves as that? Certainly not in the first temple period. They did, we were just another kingdom. You're saying at what point did our identity come to be defined right. by the menorah? Well, by the menorah. And that's something you can't, it's hard to even claim that it was that in the first in the second temple period because the menorah on Antigonus's coin was on one side and he had the showbread table on the other. If you look at the Arch of Titus, which is not a Jewish thing, so it's not representing a Jewish symbol, right. it also has a, a table with two trumpets in it. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we come back to uh, the land of Israel, we see this pop up all over the place as a symbol in modern Israel. Yeah, it does. And indeed, the, the symbol of the menorah, as we mentioned, it's one of several icons that show up, but there's something distinct about it, which is why it, for example, trumped the showbread table, is that you don't know what a showbread table is when you look at it. It's just a, 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 a rectangle, a square, or something, right? It's not something unique. 
but even as the as in Jewish wars, mm-hmm. Josephus describes the candelabrum, the menorah, as a trident with seven branches. Mm-hmm. It's that Jewish weird thing. It, it's quite clearly mm. different. It's unique. You're saying that the visual characteristics of this symbol made it so Ma- distinct. Made it stand out. So it's one of several temple vessels mm. which we may have used to connect us with the temple after its destruction. It's like a lot of Jewish organizations will use Jewish letters in their logos, whether it's an Aleph, uh, which is all over the place, or right. a Lamed, right. which is in many places, mm-hmm. but you aren't going to get a Vav. Yeah, because it doesn't it, look it's like a line. anything. It doesn't look like <laughs> Right, anything. that's not going to be the identifier of my, you know, nonprofit, a Vav. Right, it just... It's not distinct enough. Right, so it has a lot to do Whereas with Whereas the menorah is very distinct, distinct visually. It's very visually distinct, but what's interesting is that you'll notice that it shows up iconographically for at least in the Byzantine and through the early Muslim period. It's decorating synagogues. It usually comes in pairs. There's one on each side. So you have a combination of two things. Number one, you have symmetry. You have light, which you need to have, mm-hmm. and that, which you would need in the physical building, especially without electricity, right? So, you, mm-hmm. And then there is, if you're already going to have light, why not make it look like the menorah to remind us of the temple? So you're saying there's also a functional aspect to right. it, when it's not just a picture, but it's actually a lampstand. It's a lampstand. But we keep on finding the menorah on many different Jewish objects, which are even like household objects, like, mm-hmm. like oil lamps. As an icon. Yeah, or on bread stamps. Uh-huh. Right? Or, or on some, even some objects we don't even recognize. Like the Knesset. I don't recognize yeah, that. Yeah, what is that? You tell it's me, what's that? just a big square. Well, you were pointing out to me that the Knesset menorah, that the icon Knesset there. The Knesset menorah. Well, that's a whole story. So you know that it was meant intended to be built inside the Knesset, and Rabbi Herzog, uh, the chief rabbi, uh, had came out strongly against that. Why? Mostly because its base is wrong. The base is more related to the one in the Arch of Titus, which is a Roman, typical Roman lampstand. Probably the menorah is probably fitted into it. Okay. And that's a whole story because there is no basis for that lampstand other than the Arch of Titus. It's the only one. Okay. They all have a tripod. Even if you look at the one on our coin, on our artifact, mm-hmm. look at that. Is that a tripod? No. The I artisan mean, probably did a pretty bad job, too. Okay. It wasn't a great artisan. It's too. not a, It's not the Arch of Titus. No, it's not. The Arch of Titus is unique, and it has these mythological creatures on it. probably wouldn't fly in the temple. Uh-huh. And so why did we use that as the model for the menorah for the Knesset? Ooh, well, let's, let's, let's put aside the, the gift of a foreign government to the state of Israel uh, and talk about the state of Israel. Wait, are you saying that the menorah was a gift from a foreign government? Yeah. Like the Statue of Liberty to America? Yeah, the Knesset menorah was given by the British government. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, they messed up, and they messed up during the mandate, so they may as well give us a gift. So they were looking to the Arch of Titus as a model for this Jewish symbol, and that's... I mean, so did the state of Israel. It's not such a secret. That's fascinating. Yeah. It was, uh, it's in front of the Knesset. It was given by the British Parliament as a gesture to the state of Israel in 1956, and it was built by uh, Benno Elkan, who was a Jewish-British Jew of German origin, and he worked on it for six years. It has about 27 events in Jewish history, uh, famous characters like Yochanan ben Zakkai, Bar Kochva, all over around it. It's basically a visual history book of, uh, of Jew- Jewish history. Wow. So it's really cool. But if you go through, you know, this is just in Wikipedia, there's lots of cool pictures about it. There's a story about it, Lord Herbert Samuel, Adver- all of that, a lot of fun stuff about 
how it was installed and how it was paid for, but at the end of the day, because of its its lamps, its base, you can see the original plans here, because of the, the base, um, they basically said, like, no, sorry, this can't be. Rabbi Herzog said, no, this can't be inside the Knesset. So the Hanukkiah, Ooh, the Hanukkah. Hanukkah menorah that I grew up with in my parents' home mm-hmm. was based on that model. Cool. It was like so it a likeness been... of the Knesset menorah. Yeah, I've, I've seen those. So it can't be, it can't be that, uh, that, that old. Well, no. <laughs> no. But this is to point out that the menorah drawing for the modern state of Israel, taking the menorah from the Arch of Titus was deliberately done. And we, in order to understand that, we need to first of all look at um, the way the Jews of Rome looked at the Arch of Titus for a couple thousand years. Oh, yeah, I know about that. They would spit that. passing by it. They wouldn't go through it. This is the symbol of our depravity. This is the destruction. This is humiliation, mm-hmm. right? We're not going to get near that. And that all changed with the partition plan of 1927 when the United Nations, 29 November 1947, and allowed, voted in favor of erecting a Jewish state. And so then they gathered around there, and the chief rabbi of Rome gathered, and then they walked by there again. They walked in the opposite direction that they would have walked in coming from Jerusalem, even though that arch was erected after the original procession. But they basically said, like, from destruction to redemption, right? And that's why that symbol was chosen over others, over many others, Hmm. uh, to represent the state of Israel, because we're looking at the symbol of our destruction and flipping it to to the symbol of our rebuilding. But in addition to that, we have the prophecy of Zechariah, which has two olive trees pumping oil into a menorah. There's two olive wreaths on the sides of the menorah of the Arch of Titus on the emblem of the state of Israel. Hmm. You got more on uh, modern menorahs? Modern menorahs, well, if we're talking about Hanukkah menorahs, we need to understand that. No, 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 no. Then what? Where do we have modern menorahs that aren't Hanukkah? Well, like the Knesset. But that's... That's not a Hanukkah menorah. It has seven branches. I know. That's what we're talking about. But we're that's talk- it. All the that's other ones it? are Hanukkah menorahs. You have oh, like yeah? menorahs in shoals that kind of, look, but they don't really do that so much. Now they use the Magen David, the Star of David, and they use two flanking lions as uh-huh. well, which is also a Mesopotamian motif. It's so, very ancient. Okay, so we'll have to do another episode on the Magen David and talk about how it oh, displaced the menorah. Definitely. Okay, we so will be hexed by that one. That is a fascinating topic. So I wanted to get into the idea of symbols and symbolism. So I started with the etymology of symbol. Okay. Okay. Symbol, there's a a Latin version of the word, but it goes back to Greek, symbolon, Mm -hmm. which could mean a token or a watchword or a sign by which one infers a ticket, permit, license, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm getting this from uh, itamonline.com. Okay. And uh, if you break down the word, you know, the first part of symbol is coming from the Greek prefix uh, sun, uh, which would mean together, okay. right? And then... Like uh, symbiosis. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then bole, right, bowl, is throwing, casting, a stroke of a missile, bolt, beam. Uh, Are we casting several things together? It's from the verb balen. So the, yeah, so it's like... Like menorahs casting together all of them in one piece. Oh, that's interesting. It's cute. In this case, it's probably referring to casting, like you would put something in a mold. Yeah. Right. Which is, takes us into matechet, the word matechet itself, right. which is not how the menorah was made. The menorah was beaten. It wasn't made from a mold. Mm-hmm. But um, in any case, the, the word symbol uh, is already building into it a kind of three-dimensional symbol. Cool. Um, so it's stuff that's thrown together, which is also interesting for how we think of metaphors, right? 
Hmm. Because if you think about what a metaphor is, the typical way we describe a metaphor is you have, I forget the linguistic terminology that people use, but you have something that's representing, right, a mashal, and then you have the nimshal, you have the thing that's represented. So those are brought together in the metaphor, right? So in the same way, you can imagine a symbol bringing together the representing and the represented. Okay. You got a problem with this? Um, I don't know why we're doing this. <laughs> Here's my problem. There's an aspect of me mm-hmm. that says symbols suck because, listen, it's all very nice that you go and you put a nice pretty menorah on a coin, but I don't want a pretty menorah on a coin. Okay. I want a menorah in the temple. Right. Like, what the hell are you doing just making a nice pretty picture okay, so out of pic- something that okay. was real and functional and that was real was light the in the world? It was at the time. At the time, but it's not now. Now okay. it's just a damn symbol. But it's so it's taking us through time, back to the menorah of the temple. It's connecting us to the temple. It's a temple vessel. That's a very optimistic interpretation. I mean, can you find but another one? If we go to Rebbe Socrates and Rebbe Plato, this is not the thing in itself. This is not the ideal. This is just some reflection, and it's not even. Uh, reflection in the sense of like the, you know, it's not a supernal menorah in heaven. It's not even the one that existed in this world. It's just an image of one. So there's this degrading of reality into lower and lower levels. And it it cheapens with the menorah. You didn't even put it on a a hundred shekel bill. You put it on that that lowest level coin that we have. Aha. And that's the essence of propaganda. Everybody gets to see the lowest currency. Not everybody gets to see Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin on the hundred dollar bill for And also where the temple is built. In well the, the point of is the point is here that well yeah. But the point is that everybody here would have known what the menorah is and this having it on money is reminding us the temple guys, the temples. Okay, okay, but do do you get how symbols themselves are problematic? Okay, because it's not the real thing. Real. It's an association. It's it's a reminder, but that's not new. We don't do that, doing that only with the menorah. We do that with tzitzit. No, I want to talk about something more general. I want to okay. talk about symbolism in general. Okay. And there's an aspect of symbolism which is like low, cheapening, degrading, insidious, and I think it's important to to see that aspect of of images and icons and how it's degrading and how it works on our minds. Well, I will say that not having a, playing devil's advocate, I will say that not having a symbol makes it very, very difficult for us to think about anything. We're very visual learners. Okay, good. Okay, so okay, I'll, give you, the, I'll give you the flip side of this now. Okay? Speaking of coins. The, the, yes, on the other side of the coin. So the, the other side is that you kind of have to have symbols in order to have an interface with reality, which is a big deal for us again with Hanukkah because we, we talk about how a uh, Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, can be written in Greek. Right. Which seems like a crazy right. thing. Yeah, like, totally. What, is it because like Greek ideas are so deep and rich that it's possible to communicate in a language? No. It's because of the language itself. The language itself is possible, is able to represent the necessary relationships in order to preserve it. Even the, a regular Torah scroll, you know, one tittle on one tiny yud is off and the whole, the whole scroll thing. is disqualified but you could write a whole scroll in greek and it's kosher okay that's a shocking thing 
And it seems to be because the Greek language is capable of representing the necessary relationships. But that's not, it doesn't have to do with anything behind the language. It's literally about the interface, the language as an interface, right? Okay. So, okay. so we have to have these symbols. We have to have these, whether the linguistic symbols or other kinds of icons or whatever it is, in order to, um, even in order to think. And that this process of turning real things into symbols is actually really, really deep into our language, right? So the, the fundamental the books in modern linguistics that talk about this are Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things by okay. George Lakoff and uh, his book uh, with Johnson, who's a philosopher, uh, called Metaphors We Live By. So Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things is uh, long and somewhat less accessible. It, it's accessible enough, like anybody who's educated can read it. You don't have to be a technical linguist to get into it. But the other one, Metaphors We Live By, is very accessible and immediately changes, I think, your experience of language in your everyday life. It's it's a wonderful book. I mean, the one idea I can say that, that we celebrate in Judaism is the idea of language, which is very similar to the Greeks, right? The, the Greek language. Um, but the idea is that uh, why, for example, we say that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, needed to be fluent in all the other languages is because certain things are lost in translation, is that every language has a unique way of presenting things. And there's some really fascinating studies that show that based on whether a noun, like a bridge, okay. is feminine or masculine, you will come up with different adjectives You're to describe You're referring to it. studies by Lara Boroditsky, yes, who is exactly. a, uh, a student of George Lakoff. So there you go. So, Lara is an amazing researcher with amazing ideas and has some really wonderful experimental paradigms. Mm -hmm. I read many, many, many papers by her when I was doing research on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Are you building up for something negative or positive? I can't I'm tell. building up. I, I have a very high opinion of her. Uh, one of her students, however, falsified data on a study that was particularly famous, and uh, that's a big problem for the mm -hmm. theory. And uh, the effects of the experiments are extremely local. So what you have to get is that the metaphor that you use uh, in order to talk about something doesn't necessarily change your whole relationship to bridges based on whether it's masculine or feminine. No, but the it's, it conditions you to answer on a test in a particular way. The way that language shapes your cognition mm -hmm is not necessarily global and applicable to every situation in which you meet a bridge. It's, it's very, very local. I was Th that's the conclusion towards, I draw from I was studies. aiming towards something else, which is that when in some languages there's names for different grades, shades of a color, and in another language there's just two, so when you switch also from one to the other... Also a great study by her where she looks at Russian, which has a mandatory yes, distinction between, between two different, different shades of blue. Of blue. Right. right, then you actually see brain activity when there is a difference in name, whereas in others you don't. It's really cool stuff. It's really hard to know if there are significant cognitive effects from it. Okay. I think that the better experiment mm -hmm. is the maybe the most expensive experiment ever done in history. Marriage? And, no, advertising. Oh, Okay. Because we know very much from marketing and advertising mm -hmm. that how you talk about something affects how people think about it. Yep. So it's a very, very simple experiment. So yes, language matters and the metaphors we use matter. The point that Lakoff and Johnson are making mm -hmm. is that language is actually based on metaphor. Mm -hmm. And to a great extent, our language consists of sediments of metaphor. Like yeah. we've 
killed off these metaphors over and over again, and they've been turned into the sedimentary rock, like fossils. This is what we're walking around on. I mean, so that's etymology you, and language study. It's not just etymology. It's, it's like, so I'll give you some examples, right? Sure. So uh, we can use the language of war to talk about something that has nothing to do with war. For example? For example, you can demolish the argument. It's not necessarily war, it's destruction. Uh, his claim is indefensible. Okay. Or uh, you can uh, defeat the disease. I get it. So on it's, the a other, right, it's a metaphor. Right. On the other hand, and we met this when COVID erupted on the world, like mm -hmm. what metaphors are we going to use to talk about it? So Netanyahu got up and used the metaphor, which is very familiar to Israelis, of war for how we're going to deal with this. It didn't have to be done that way, right? You didn't have to talk about disease in terms of war. You can also talk about another terms like cancer finally caught up with him. The disease finally caught up with him. It's not uh, a war that you're fighting. There's like a foot race or, you know, however you, you understand okay. movement like that. Okay. okay. Metaphors also built into how we talk about situations in the prepositions that we use. So Harry is in love. You mean he's in love? Yeah. He's in the state of love. I'm sorry, is love a state? Is that what it is? Hmm. Like, but we use in, like there's this container of love or there's a state of love or whatever it is, and Harry is in that thing, right? Harry is in trouble. Are you in trouble? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he jumped out of the frying, frying pan and pan. into the fire, yeah. So, right? so the, the point but is that's, that... That's a more live metaphor, but you have this dead metaphor. He's in trouble. There's a beautiful quote from that book. The heart of metaphor is inference. And because we reason in terms of metaphor, the metaphors we use determine a great deal about how we live our lives. That's the big premise of the book, that the metaphors that we use matter. Okay. For me, the crux of this whole thing is we start with a real thing, with a real function, and it turns into a symbol. Okay. And the symbol goes in different directions. Yeah. It's identity, it's wisdom. And we've it's, seen that. That's what the and process has gone through. And we saw that, right. Through, right. And, and the process of turning it into a symbol and the history of turning it into a symbol mm -hmm. is fascinating. Yeah. But I want to think about symbolism itself. All right. I see what you're doing there. Okay. <laughs> Point is that the language is built up of symbols. Mm -hmm. The thought is symbolic. That ev really everything that we treasure about our relationship with reality other than sensory experiences themselves is going to be treasurable because it relies on symbols. Okay. And human cognition, like you were saying before, runs on symbols. One of the great examples of this, a great way that we see it, is in connection with nevoah, with prophecy. You're right, where you right? basically have a symbol that's interpreted based on the person who perceives it and based on their world of imagery, mm -hmm. a message is conveyed to them, but it's really specific to their understanding of it. Right, and what's fascinating about that in connection with what we were talking about with Zechariah, with Zechariah, mm -hmm. is that there the whole process breaks down. Because he's supposed to understand what this menorah is. And, and he said, doesn't and get it. It's the only time you get the behind the scenes, like the behind the, the, the backstage. He's like, you're supposed to know what this means. Yeah. And it's not just with the menorah. This goes back and forth in this conversation with this right. malach for like three Zachariah, or four different images. Zechariah, for his images. name, the one who remembers, apparently has a, doesn't really remember what things are supposed to be. I don't know if it's an issue of memory, but he doesn't know how to interpret it. Well, that was um, just for fun. Okay. Yeah. So we see how symbols are essential for language mm -hmm. and essential 
maybe for human cognition and thought and memory. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to suggest that it's something even more basic that gets even deeper into our biology on some level. Because once you have any kind of embodied representation of anything, mm -hmm. like any kind of creature remembering anything, for example, then you start to suspect that there's some kind of representation, there's some kind of symbolism. So like think about, uh, think about animal cognition. Okay. okay, elephants remember stuff. Mm -hmm. They're amazing navigators. Do they have a mental map? How would they do it without some kind of mental map? Right, the assumption is they have a mental map. It seems like there's some kind of representation. A representation of the terrain is a symbol. Got it. Okay. Oh, okay. So, okay. Okay, elephants are pretty sophisticated. Um, apes make tools. We see that now. Less sophisticated animals also make tools. Mm -hmm. If you can make a tool, you clearly have an intention. Right. If you have Which means an there's a picture of something that I need to do or to yeah. make or to get to, and yeah. now I'm going to go ahead and flesh out that representation. That you map, seem to be representing map. some kind of telos, some kind of goal mm -hmm. in your cognition, in your process, right? Mm -hmm. Here's a really basic one. If you can identify something as the same thing across time, it seems like you have a consistent representation of that thing. That's why the, if there is one icon which you can say that about in Judaism, it's the menorah. The menorah is a thread that runs through ancient to modern history consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what you were saying before, to say that animals have symbols. Maybe this sounds far-fetched. Okay. But what's the alternative? The alternative is essentially that you're saying that they're philosophical zombies. That they, <laughs> this, this is a technical term, by the way. Everybody philosophical should, zombie? Philosophical zombies is, is a, technical a technical thing. Th yes, what? everybody should look it up. In other words, the zombie apocalypse can really be Zoolander. Oh, th this Not is... Zoolander, sorry. I'm the zombie up, apocalypse has been discussed in the philosophical literature extensively. Is that the, that the uh, what, it mean, what, what it's like to be a bat thing, or that's just about existential? That's related. It's related, right? Because you're, you're saying it seems like there must be something that it's like to be a bat. What it's like to be a bat. Da -dum, da -da 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 -dum. <laughs> a philosophical zombie would be something that is basically a machine, right? It behaves in a way yes. that seems like it could have an internal experience, but it doesn't. It simulates one. It's a simulator, but there's nothing inside of it. There's nothing that it's like to be a philosophical zombie. Okay. It's just a machine. So you could go to like a really low-level organism, like an aplesia, a sea slug. Okay. Okay? They learn. Right. But if they learn, does that mean they represent something? Do they have symbols? No. It seems far-fetched. Um, I don't know. But maybe it makes sense to think of internal experiences of qualia as symbols abstracting away from particulars and details of raw reality. It's some kind of representation. Just to go back to the idea that cognition runs symbolically, I wanted to, to give a shout out to uh, Ernst Cassir, who's one of my favorite 20th century thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, so he did a, a three-volume magnum opus, really, mm -hmm. um, called The Philosophy of Symbolic Forms. And there he talks about us as symbolic animals. 
not homo sapiens, the knowing animals, okay. not oh. tool-making animals, okay. but we're symbolic animals. He cool. sees that as the uniquely human. But like the modern man, like the homo sapiens sapien, like they're... What well, drives us now is we have symbols that we can, that are communicated mim mimetically, perhaps. Oh, okay. So you're getting onto something interesting. So the, his whole project is to kind of trace the development of symbolic sophistication through humanity. He says that the, the most basic and primitive type of symbolic meaning is expressive meaning, right? So there's an experience of events in the world, and they're charged with some kind of emotion, it's desirable, or it's, uh, it's yucky, or it's terrifying, or whatever it is, it's comforting, threatening, whatever. Um, and he sees that as the basis for mythical consciousness. He says that there's a total disregard for distinction between appearance and reality in myth. I mean, this right? really so takes you, have... you into, I guess, the origins of, like the urban revolution where you start seeing archaeologically you start seeing mythologies and myth like that's what those terms are usually associated with we have creation myths flood myths mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right the mythologies right, are right. all ideas where there's an idea represented by these wars between gods and the titans and whatever it is it doesn't really matter right. which which culture you go to the very existence of mythologies throughout history tells you that there's this reality of building on symbols which make associations, which represent ideas, which et cetera, et cetera. Right. And he, he wants to point out in his book on mythology how the appearance and the reality are all sort of mixed up. So you have lots of shape-shifting. You have a discontinuity of time. You have just all sorts of things that are impossible mm -hmm. in physical reality as we know it. Mm -hmm. But that, that's all okay on that level of symbolism, the mythical level of symbolism. Right. Um, so the next level is representative symbolic meaning, and that gives us natural language. And then we have an intuitive world of ordinary sense perception. And then at that point, we start to distinguish between the enduring thing substance on the one side and its uh, variable manifestations uh, on the other side. And so we can you say, you know, this is the essence, these are incidents, these are things that occurred to it. And so there, instead of myth where everything is mixed up, you can actually have history. You can say, there's this thing, and these are things that happened to it over time. You can't do that in myth. You can do that once you have representative language. Okay. That's one of the things that cool. can occur there. Then you have a third, a third level of uh, signification. So this is where you'd go from like the ordinary, intuitive, natural language conception of space to abstracting away from that and talking about like a mathematical space. So this is where you get into like math and logic and science. And that's like the highest level of symbolic uh, sophistication that he sees. That kind of wraps around to my initial tension about symbols. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, degrading reality and on the other hand, being essential to human cognition and needed to represent reality and function in reality. So it's the lesser the, of harab miuto. In Hebrew, you say, in English, you say the lesser of two evils, but I'm not asking to compare two different ones. In Hebrew, it just means the least of, the, of evil. Harab miuto. The point is, you're saying it's not ideal, but we need it. Ah, uh, so you could interpret it that way. Okay. Right? But... What I want to get at is that once you have symbols, what they really allow you do, to do is to invent new realities. Yeah. The most powerful form of this, maybe, is just fantasy. Fantasy is nothing but symbol. If, if I can take this back to the menorah, 
Okay. So we see how the menorah, I mean, this is just a sample, but mm-hmm. as, as a symbol, mm-hmm. right, evolved over time and was invested with new meaning, which helped us revisit the past and imbue the past with more meaning to inspire us in the present and on and on. And so in the modern state of Israel, we have an additional aspect of, of the light of the menorah and Hanukkah, which was previously like un, un, unthought of in Judaism, right? With this whole concept of celebrating, the, like, for example, Hanukkah wasn't a big deal until, until like, modern Zionism. It wasn't a thing. Hmm. It's the holiday that has to do with the spirit and endurance, but it wasn't on a pedestal like it is where we have modern Zionist songs about the Maccabees and their heroism and the menorah's strength. And the, like, I that's don't know. A very, Mao's sword is really beautiful, and it's pretty old. It's Yeah, it's 13th century. Yeah, it's pretty old. It's from Germany. Yeah, okay. and there's... And it talks about the Galuyot, but it wasn't... There's lots of really beautiful Mamare yeah, yeah. Chazal about Right, Hanukkah. but they talk about, they talk about, they don't talk about the Maccabees. They talk about how we survived the, the evil, cruel decrees of, of Antiochus. They didn't talk about... Ah, uh, you're talking about the addition of the heroic right, dimension. Right, and that there. part, which mm-hmm. is very, which makes it popular. For example, you look at all this modern mm-hmm. Israeli comedy. Mm-hmm. They tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. Uh-huh, right? We didn't uh-huh. look at it like that. Uh-huh. Uh, this is like a remythologization of Hanukkah, yes. you're saying. Ah, yes. okay. Okay, interesting. Interesting. And it's important to understand that in the context of the modern symbols in the state of Israel, where they, on the one hand, take the past, uh-huh. but they reinvest it with new meaning uh-huh. to serve a new purpose, mm. which is t- much take us to the Star of David, but we can't go there today. <laughs> okay. Right? That's okay. a whole different story. All right. I wanted to, to mention Gershom Shalom's theory of symbols. This wound up being influential in Israeli intellectual life. Here's a quote from one of his books. In the mystical symbol, a reality which in itself has, for us, no form or shape, becomes transparent and, as it were, visible through the medium of another reality which clothes its content with the visible and expressible meaning, as, for example, the cross for the Christian. The thing which becomes a symbol retains its original form and its original content. It does not become so to speak, an empty shell into which another content is poured. In itself, through its own existence, it makes another reality transparent, which cannot appear in any other form. The symbol signifies nothing and communicates nothing, but makes something transparent, which is beyond expression. Of such symbols, well, he goes off and now he talks about specific applications in in Kabbalah, but the point is, He wants to distinguish between symbol and allegory. So in another place he writes, uh, that which is expressed by and in the allegorical sign is in the first instance something which has its own meaningful context, but by becoming allegorical, that something loses its own meaning and becomes the vehicle of something else, right? So you could think about the allegories in the uh, New Testament or Maimonides' allegory of the the palace Mm -hmm. or Plato's allegory of the cave. Each element in the story corresponds to something else and mm-hmm. the story has some you know it helps you remember the lesson or whatever it is or it you know adds some pep to the lecture but in a sense it's not necessary i could give you the message in prose but i'm going to use the allegory i'm going to use these symbols uh in that sense mm-hmm. to to pep it up a bit but the symbol that shalom wants to talk about is something else 
It's not something that could be said in prose. I have to use a symbol because otherwise it can't be said at all. Right, it's too... Right. If allegory can be defined as the representation of an expressible something by another expressible something, the mystical symbol is an expressible representation of something which lies beyond the sphere of expression and communication. A hidden and inexpressible reality finds its expression in the symbol. Uh, I think it brings us back to Zechariah, if you want to end with that. Yeah. Zechariah is saying, like, is woken up and the, 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 the angel says to him, what do you see? And he says, well, I see a lampstand all of gold with a bowl above it, and there's lamps on it that, that are seven in numbers, and the lamps above it have seven pipes. By the two olive trees, one on the right one of the bowl and one on its left, and I turn and I ask the angel to talk to me, what do those things mean, my lord? Right? What do those things mean? There's this bowl and there's olive trees mm -hmm, pumping mm -hmm, oil into a bowl, which yeah. is pumping into this seven-branch menorah. Yeah. Right? And this is before the story of Hanukkah. Right? Mm -hmm. So what, what does this mean? Then he explained to me as follows. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, who is, again, the leader of the Jewish people with the return to Judah after mm -hmm. the, right, the Cyrus proclamation. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. Whoever you are, O great mountain in the path of Zerubbabel, turn into level ground, for I shall produce that excellent stone, and I shall be greeted with shouts of beautiful, beautiful. The point is, you'll move mountain kids. Don't worry about what's in front of you. It's going to work out not by the power of the might, because remember that at the beginning of the Second Temple, we didn't have a king. We didn't have an army. We were under the auspices of the uh, Achaemenid Persian Empire. And yet, it's going to be okay. You're going to endure. And somehow, the menorah of the light, right, that somehow represents that idea of it's by God's Spirit. And it's not by the power of force that you'll be able to achieve what you need to achieve. Hmm. And if you think about what the menorah must have meant for us throughout most of history, and what Hanukkah must have meant for us, which is why that's been the Haftorah, the reading of Hanukkah, it was probably that where we are, we are downtrodden throughout history and we're able to survive and rebuild. And the menorah had the connection to that, whereas during the time of the temple, I mean, if that's, that's what it meant, and then why didn't Zahari know? Everybody would have known that. Clearly, it wasn't what it meant. Hmm. In the Mishkan, in the, in the wilderness, it wasn't what it meant. It was reinvested with that meaning now, and now that's what it means, perhaps or it becomes the representation that's able to show us that Ruach that maybe we didn't detect in it before, but now we can discover in it. And therefore you can say with, with integrity, reread re the story of Aaron and the dedication and connect it to Hanukkah and connect it to these things, even though maybe back then he didn't think about it in these terms. You can say God is, so to speak, saying you are are feeling down for not having contributed to the dedication of the, 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 the wilderness tabernacle, the Mishkan, in this way, your children are going to be lighting the lights of Hanukkah, and that's going to last and outlast the temple. I mean, mm. yes, it, it was innate in that, even mm. though it didn't mean it to him at the time, but, but it did mean that. And he just didn't know it yet. You're pointing the, the flow from Aaron from then till now in, right. the, in the menorah, whether we're talking about the flow of that ruach, that spirit, or the flow of the oil, or maybe they're the same thing here. 
Well, in perhaps this. that the light itself doesn't even mean wisdom here. Just light itself, the mm. energy that's latent inside the oil, mm. which helps light up the mm. light of, in this case, the, perhaps the temple, right? Because that's what we're talking about. Yeah, it's going to work out. Yeah. In other this words, is... here's the the energy, and it's going to translate into burst into flame, into action. It's going to fulfill its potential. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Artifact Podcast, where we explore the history, ideas, and existential mystery, the symbology of everything. Symbology of mystery and different things. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating and a positive review, and share the Artifact Podcast with everyone you know who would like it. If you've got a podcast, YouTube channel, blog, or something else, and you'd like to have on one or both of us, we'd be thrilled. Please get in touch. Right now, the best way to support the show is to help us get to the people who want to hear it. And of course, we're very happy to hear from you via social media. Use the hashtag Artifact Podcast if you want to write something about us. Links to all our stuff are in the description below. That's good. And so welcome to episode five of the Artifact Podcast. Where, <laughs> where planes fly overhead. We're going to be talking about... A menorah, the ten agora coin, which is roughly the equivalent of the American dime. Right? Yeah. Or is it the nickel? It's it's our ten cents. It's our ten cents. So we're going like to throw in our own ten cents. We're going to throw in our own two and a half cents exactly. Well, more or less depending on inflation. This is a ten agora coin. Now, what's special about this ten agora coin is that on the back of the coin, on the obverse, right? No, the inverse. What it has is. I think inverse is when you turn the coin inside out. Right. Well, heads or tails? Tails. Uh, we don't do that. We don't do the heads actually. We do eights for Pali. Yes. So we're Oh, at, oh, that's good here. What's the eights? Ooh, the tree. The tree. I like that. Who was that? Who wrote Athens and Jerusalem? Is that a Churchill connection? Athens no, that's, and Jerusalem? That's the philosopher at University of Chicago. Ah, oh, that Jewish guy. Yeah, it rings a bell. Why can't I? I think he his wrote name like a is iconic. Essay. He wrote the introduction to um, Mor Nebuchim. Ah. I'm trying to look at the where the book is, right? Athens and Jerusalem book. Why oh, can't I remember his name? embarrassing thing to blink. Leo Strauss. Mm -hmm. he's, he's one of these uh, figures in philosophy where he kind of started a cult. Ooh. Cult. Yeah. Like, like, a cult following, people who are like groupies. People who are Straussians are like a thing. It's like a telegram, but it's instant. Yes. It is. Because the sort main of like problem the coffee. With... The coffee is instant. It's not. It just came out bad. This is not instant coffee? No, it's Turkey. Oh, it is Turkish, but it was done instantly. <laughs> it was, no, it had a few minutes. It just didn't, I don't think it got hot enough. I okay, well, since we're live, I probably shouldn't lift okay. my finger and slurp loudly, right? You could gargle, I think. Gargling's, like gar gargamel? Gargling's okay on live streams, right? All right, yeah, of course. That's like the gargoyles. Let's get started, no, shall it's we? It's not usual that I get to see my beard in profile. <laughs> You're a beard profiler. So you say. You're getting distracted, man. Yes, I'm getting distracted because I have something to, to give me just a second. Okay, this just is, take, take care of what you got to take care of. Mm-hmm. Give me just a few seconds. Okay. We're coming right back, Right back folks. to you. Yes, this is. I don't know what this is about. 
It must yeah. be really important. Okay. Nachliel's got a yes. I'm a very important order of curly fries. How do I cancel the order of curly fries? Yes, because I, he's my friend who runs. I wasn't the, kidding. <laughs> my friend, my friend who owns the shop said it's okay. You can order now, and then talk to me later, and I will arrange. And things like the guy's here. He's sending. Like, no, no, please, we, please, please don't give me a whole extra on it. I heard the conversation before. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a funny story, and fries have to do with oil, which might have to do with the menorah. <laughs> My gosh, this is ridiculous. He's sending me a voice note. I'm telling you, we're in the middle of a live stream. This is ridiculous. This is so silly. It's really funny. I, I don't know what to do. It's the small cruelties of life <laughs> wear on you over and over again. Across a crowded encounter. There are three people watching now. Nachliel, we have to talk. We have to do this. Okay. Okay, Everybody who's tuning in I'm, for this amazing live stream, let me catch you up to up to speed. Mm -hmm. Okay, this probably makes the outtakes.